0: If you brought a Bible with you this morning, you can, at this time, turn there to Romans chapter 16. It's the last chapter of one of the more substantive theologically books of the New Testament, perhaps the most theologically uh, substantive and influential books of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. when you take a look at your Bible, or if you take a look at the screen here, um, you see only part of the reading that we're going to have here this morning. And uh, it's kind of an interesting passage. Um, frankly, it's um, in some ways, it's not the easiest passage to preach because um, it's, just a, it's a bunch of names, and most of the names are simply unknown to us. Uh, some of the names, if you search uh, the rest of the New Testament, you'll see references to them, but a lot of the names are just simply unknown. and it's it's it, reading these names is somewhat like reading the genealogies or the family trees of the Old Testament. you know, you kind of it's very easy to check out. But we have to remember they're in the Bible for a reason. And so bear that in mind as we read uh, these names together and we are reminded of the role that each and every one of us play in Christ's church and his kingdom, whether we're well well-known or whether we are obscure. So, Romans chapter 16, let's draw attention to these words now. The Apostle Paul writes at the conclusion of this very important letter. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epineus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet also Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Impliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus. Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I want to end our our reading at that point. It's kind of a, I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on on a passage like this. Pastors tend to, unless they're working through a series on the book of Romans, then they'll, they'll deal with a passage like this, but oftentimes it's probably um, not their first choice. And it's probably not their first choice because, well, it's such a difficult passage to preach, but how do you really apply it in a heartwarming way when you have just a list of names, right? And, and the, the Apostle Paul ends this passage kind of like we used to end letters. For those of you who are middle age or older, before you had email, remember, you used to Handwrite letters, or you'd type letters, and oftentimes at the end of the letter you say something like, uh, "And by the way, say hi to so and so, and if you happen to bump into so and so, say hi to them as well, and 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 these kinds of things." Well, this is what the Apostle Paul is doing here, and and he's he's saying something here to us that that he was a theologian and a very astute theologian, and also trained uh, in philosophy. He sat beneath the feet of a very astute Jewish teacher, I read about this in the book of Acts, named Gamaliel. So he was, he was, intellectually he was a very gifted man, but he was a pastor at heart. And he didn't forget these individuals, some who were very well known and some who were rather obscure, and he mentions a number of them here. Now, you know, um, I want to uh, ask you the question like oftentimes do where we have a little bit of dialogue in our afternoon service, but I want you to think about this in your mind and, and ask yourself the question, how many names do you think are actually mentioned here? Think about that. Make a guess in your mind. There's 26. Maybe you thought, well, there's 30 or 40 or 50, or maybe you were a bit few or whatever, but 26. That's still a lot of individuals. And as I said, a lot of them are not very well known, not only to us, but also to historians and commentators and, <laughs> and researchers. I remember um, when, um, and I've told you this before, that for a time, Joy and I, uh, did a little bit of church planting in uh, a place called Springfield, Missouri, which is about the same population actually as Abbotsford, but given that it was part of the Ozarks region of the u s was very different culture as you can imagine and there was a there was a and i 'll be brief with this but there was a there was a, a cemetery in the middle of the town that I visited on a number of occasions, and there are a number of individuals who are buried there who fought a very significant battle during the time of the U.S. Civil War. It, it took place seven miles outside of Springfield. It was known the Battle of Wilson's Creek. And occurred actually on this month, August of 1861, and over 2,000 individuals died on both sides of the Union Confederate forces. And with all those dead bodies on the battlefield, what they did is they, they took those bodies and they brought them to... Springfield, and they buried, there, buried them there in the center of the city, and, and their, two, uh, their, their, their gravestones are still there, and if you, if you walk through that cemetery, it's very interesting, like a history lesson, as you walk, you see some names of individuals, and they'll say the cavalry unit, or the infantry unit of which they were part, but there's also um, many, many gravestones, and they're, they're white, just plain white gravestones, and all it says is unknown, unknown. And in a sense, that's what you have here. You, you, you don't necessarily have gravestones, but you have names. But that's about all you know. They're relatively unknown. But, and, well, let me just add this. It'd be very easy, since we don't really know them, to say, well, then, what's really the point of digging into this? Just read the names and maybe deal with the more substantive part of the book of Romans, right? But if we believe, as the Bible says, that all of Scripture is inspired by God, is God-breathed, and is profitable for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped unto every good work, well, then we have to believe that given verbal inspiration, which is a doctrine that teaches us that the very words, not just the content, but the words of the Bible are inspired, well, we have words here in the mention of names. And so this is also part of inspired Scripture, Right? And it must be here for reasons. So we're going to delve into that reason. We're going to delve into some of these names, and also what we're going to do is um, we are uh, going to deal, first of all, however, with what I call groupings. I don't want to spend just a little bit of time on this, but I think it's rather interesting. So I'm going to leave, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, at a certain point, I'm going to get into specifically some of these names, the significance of these names, and a number of them I'm not. Okay, but let's deal with the groupings of these names first of all. First of all, there's, there's actually, when you, when you look at verses 1 through 16 and you really take time to think about it, reflect it, and research it, you see that there are three main groupings here that revolve around ethnicity and class and gender. So when you take a look at the ethnicities here, you have two basic ethnicities, although you find more as you read on in the New Testament and the church is spreading throughout the Mediterranean region. You have Jews, primarily Jews, but you also have Greeks, and you can tell by the names. For instance, you have Phoebe, or you have uh, Aquila and Priscilla, who are of Jewish background. But you find another, uh, other names here, Apelles, or Urbanus, or Herodian, or uh, Persis, Greek name. So you have, you have this, is, this is, my point is, this is not a monocultural, monolinguistic, that is, one culture, one language, one ethnicity type of people. You have, you have diversity here. You have Jew, and you also have a number of different kinds of Gentiles, or non-Jews, or Greeks. Then secondly, what you have here is you have different classes if you've been to research a little bit. So you've got individuals who seem to be a little bit lower class, maybe not very well known and somewhat poor, but you also have individuals who have reached higher class. And For instance, and I'll mention this a little bit later, you have individuals who are part of Herod's family or the household of Caesar. That's quite significant, and I'll I'll address that very quickly. Quickly, a little bit later on. And then you also have genders. And of course, you know, as Christians, there are two genders, not more. So you got male and you have female. And it's rather interesting that of the 26 names that are mentioned here, about a third are actually women. I think they're very interesting. So, what's the point of bringing that all out? The point is, is that the, the Christian faith or the Christian religion. Really, if you, if you examine it from this Bible's perspective, and you see this even today, it transcends culture, language, gender, backgrounds of people. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ already now, and it becomes even more so as time goes on, is, is not only just a very diverse group, but it, in, in many ways it's a very inclusive group. And I use that word inclusive very deliberately because we're living in a culture now where oftentimes as Christians we're told that we're not very inclusive, but we're very exclusive. People think that this is just a good old boys, a good old girls club, it's only for the holy people and also they, just, they, they view the church as just kind of tight and wound up and very anti-cultural and these kinds of things, when in reality of all the religions of the world, really Christianity is is highly, highly inclusive. What I mean by that is that the invitation of Jesus goes out to all, whether no matter what background, no matter what gender, no matter what class, rich or poor, no no matter what ethnicity, it doesn't matter if you're black or you're white or you're Asian or what have you, the call of Jesus goes out. And what's the call? Whatever your background, no matter what sins you may be involved in, no matter if you are so-called walking with God or you have turned your back on God, Jesus says this, come unto me, he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden with your sins, and I will give you what you're looking for. I will give you rest. Repent, believe, come to the end of yourself and draw near to me. Why do I bring that out? Well, not only because it's a reflection here of our passage, but to always to remind us that no matter who we are when we come into this place of worship, and no matter what we have brought to play in this worship service as far as our beliefs and our lives are concerned, God does not push us away, but in Jesus He says, in fact, Jesus Himself says, come, come. So really, let, let our prayer be for us as a local church and let our prayer be for the churches of our classes. And let our prayer be for the churches of our federation that we increasingly over time, as we bring the gospel to bear upon the city or the places in which we're living, may it be that the, the diversity of our churches expand and begin to reflect more and more what we find here in this passage, what we find throughout the New Testament, and even may it reflect what we are going to find in heaven, where Revelation 7 says that there are people of every tribe, nation, and tongue who are gathered around the throne of the Lamb, praising the Lamb for all eternity. May our churches more and more reflect that kind of health and that kind of beauty. But moving on. Um, I want to get away from the, from the groupings for just a moment and get, get into some names here that you may find interesting. For instance, um, go to the first verse there if you would, uh, 16 verse 1. If you have a Bible, I want you to take a look at this where we read this. And it mentions actually, the first person who's mentioned here is not even a male, it's a female. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. A servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. I want to deal with that. I, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that, that when Paul was thinking of names, he just didn't willy nilly write, well, okay, say hi to so and so hi, and say hi to so and so. But I think he was very deliberate. And I think he was very deliberate in mentioning this woman, Phoebe, who he calls uh, a servant of the church. Now, if you look at the footnote of your Bible, maybe some of your Bibles have this, it actually has the word deaconess in there. Uh, A deaconess can mean many things, and what the translators here decided to render that is not a woman who necessarily holds office, but maybe one who was a helper of those who held office, the deacons, or maybe she was someone who, as they render here, the word deacon referred to an office, but it can also refer just to someone who's a servant in the church. That's how the ESV renders it here, and she truly was a servant. You know, um, uh, many commentators believe that it was actually Phoebe who was given a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth, and she was designated as the courier of this letter to this church in Rome. Now, if you think about it, when you you look at the New Testament, as you learn the Bible and you come across the book of Romans, you see it's kind of a dense book, and it's a very informative book, and a life-changing book once you begin to understand it. And it's one of the more... I don't know how to put this, but more important, more influential books of the New Testament in terms of its teaching and its doctrines. And and you think about that, this very important, if not most important book of the New Testament, Paul puts in the hands of a woman as a courier and says, I want you to take this to the church. And Phoebe does that. But she's more than, than just uh, a courier, she's also said, notice what the Apostle Paul says, she's been a patron of many and myself as well. So this is an indication that Phoebe may also have been a woman not only of influence but of wealth. And was well, Paul says, she's a patron of me. In other words, she probably gave money to the Apostle Paul for the sake of, of his ministry and Paul says, not only me but others as well. She may have also been the kind of woman who helped to serve the poor and those who were in need and those who were being persecuted. The the, the point is is that she was very, very influential in the church of Rome. And it's interesting to note how many influential women there actually were in the church of Rome. For instance, there's uh, Priscilla, verse 3. There's Mary, verse 6. There's Junia, verse 7. Tryphena and Tryphosa, possibly sisters that are mentioned here as well in verse 12. There's Persis, verse 12, and Julia, verse 15. So, you know, um, not only are there a number of women who are influential in the church, but the Apostle Paul calls them fellow workers. So the idea that we get in the church is that women were not uh, viewed as second-class citizens. But they were those who had gifts to be used in the body of Jesus Christ. They were not bystanders, they were not mere observers, but they were part and parcel of the church in Rome and very influential there. And it's it's a reminder, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I've, I've said this before, but it's, it's something that we need to remember here at Pathway as well, that you know, I've said it before that you, know, you can try to imagine what this church would be like without the women. I mean, it would be a, a pretty sad state of affairs if it was just all run by men, right? Women bring many things to the table. They may not hold office in this church, right, based upon 1 Timothy 2 and, and 3 and Titus chapter 1 and 1 Peter 5 and other passages like this. But, but just because women don't hold office in the church doesn't mean that we view them as second-class citizens, but we ver- view them uh, very highly for the relational gifts that they bring to the church for unfolding of newer women for the mentoring of women for the mentoring of children for the for hospitality you know um i don't know if you ever do this but a lot of you are mingling before the worship service or you're mingling after the worship service and you're getting your coffee and you're talking and we're we're just fellowshipping with each other and sometimes you should you should do this you should just kind of stand back a little bit and observe what's going on, and, and watch how people mingle with each other, but especially watch how women are very relationally, oftentimes, unless you're caring for little ones or going to the nursery, right, a lot of you women are out there and you're, you're mingling with others, and that's a, it's a beautiful thing to see. It's very, very important for the health of the body of Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, pathway would be very impoverished. Uh, without you women here, and I want to say that publicly. But let, let's let's move on. I want to bring out just two other individuals here that um, are very important, and they're Prisca and Aquila. Aquila is the male, and Prisca, also known as Priscilla, is the female. Um, I don't know if you know anything about them, but they're also mentioned in the Book of Acts and elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, I think they're mentioned, if I counted, either four or five different times. So um, uh, Prisca and Aquila were a husband and wife team. And uh, the Bible tells us, or gives us the indication, doesn't state it right out, but it gives us the indication that they were well-versed in this book. Not just, the, not just the husband, also the wife. And there's a point in the book of Acts where there was a man named Apollos who was known as mighty in the Scriptures, and he was, he was in the process of teaching someone, and Prisca and Aquila came alongside of them, uh, uh, of him and realized that even though he knew this book well, he was teaching in a way, and the Bible doesn't get into the specifics of this, but he was teaching in a way that was, was, was not quite correct. He was not rightly, as the Bible says, dividing the word of truth. So they came alongside of him gently and explained the way of the Lord more clearly and more accurately, the Bible says. So, so they both knew this book. Um, beyond that, the Bible says that um, they were also bold. Notice that the Apostle Paul, I don't know if you notice this, but in this passage when he refers to them, he says, they literally risked their necks for me. doesn't go into detail, but um, I think he's literally meaning this. I mean, they exposed themselves to great danger, in maybe in order to protect Paul or, or whatever. We don't know the circumstances, but that tells us that they were bold. So they, they knew the Scripture, they were bold, and the Apostle Paul also says in this passage that they provided a home. In which people could worship. Now, you know, sometimes you hear about the house church movement, but I want to suggest to you that in the early church people did at times worship in homes. You say, well, why did they do that? It's very likely because of persecution. You know, things were very, very basic back then. But anyway, it was it was Prisca and Aquila who were also very influential. So so when you when you look at the names that are mentioned here, you have what I would call some heavy hitters. You have Phoebe, you have Prisca and Aquila. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention one other name. I don't know if he was a real mover and shaker, but it may be of interest to you. Um, let's see if I can find him here. Uh, verse 13. Verse 13. Just one example as we get into a little bit of biographical uh, into, uh, backgrounds of individuals. Greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Do you know who Rufus' father was? It was a man named Simon of Cyrene. Does that ring a bell? Simon of Cyrene was the individual who carried the cross of Christ for a time as Christ was on the way to Golgotha to be crucified. Simon of Cyrene. Simon had two sons, Rufus and Alexander. Of course, he was was also married, which makes you think, If this is the Rufus, and many commentators believe that to be so, if this Rufus is the one who finds himself as a Christian in the Church of Rome, it makes you wonder, Simon of Cyrene, I mean, he was among a crowd who was just selected, randomly, say, you go carry the cross of Christ. Could it be that Simon of Cyrene became a believer in Jesus Christ because of what he observed in Christ and also in carrying the cross? And could it be that in becoming a believer, His wife became converted as well. And they trained Rufus and Alexander to own the Lord Jesus as their own. And that Rufus then finds his name here among this list. Could very well be. You see what's kind of interesting? That for for a passage you first read and you kind of go, okay, oh, we got these names. And you read through them quickly and you move on. Once you begin to dig into them, you go, oh, this is interesting. We see how the Lord is building is church. And so our passage mentions some heavy weights, but also mentions some relatively unknown individuals who contributed to the church. Here's a sampling. If you take a look at verse 5, Epinitus is mentioned there. Epinitus is known as the first convert on the continent of Asia. <laughs> Think about that. He's the, he's the first one who came to Christ in an entire continent of people. And he's known as the first fruits of Asia, literally, the first fruits of Asia. And when you when you read that term, first fruits, a, a Jew, somebody who comes from Jewish background, would not have missed the significance of that. You know, what the first fruits refers to it's, the first fruits, were that it was, it was really the first pickings of either the barley or the wheat harvest, and it was that first pickings was given to the priest. And they were wrapped together, and then what the priest would do at one point, he would wave it before the people of God, and as if to say, people, and oh Lord, we recognize that this first picking of the wheat or the barley harvest comes from your hand, and we look forward to the full harvest to come. So that when Epinetus is called the first fruits of Asia, it's really like saying He's he's the first one of a promise of God as the gospel goes out to add more and more to the church of Jesus Christ. How would you like to be known as the first convert in in Canada or in North America? And you wonder, as you play around with these names, you wonder if there are those who, I'm, I'm sure they probably couldn't connected all the way to Eponidas, but there's got to be individuals in the world, whether they believe in Jesus or not, who can go back, back, back to their great, 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 great grandfather who was Eponidas, the first convert. Shows that the Lord is doing his work through his spirit and through his word. But there's more here. There's Andronicus and Junius, or Junia in verse 7. Paul says they were converted to the Christian faith before he was. And um, he notes that uh, they spent time in prison, actually, because of their faith. So it's not easy for the Christians at this time. There's Aristobulus in verse 10, who commentators believe may have been the grandson of Herod the Great, the very one who pursued the Jesus in order to kill him. If there is a family who should have turned their back completely on Jesus, it was Herod the Great's family and yet we read about Herodian. The Bible and historical records do show us that some of Caesar's household became Christians. So the, the, the point is this, what we see is that as the Christian faith goes out into the world, it enters into all stratas of society to the lower stratas of society, to the middle, to what we call the middle class, and also to the rich and the well-known and royal, uh, those who are part of the royal family. And finally, another important individual, verse 23, there's a man, Erastus, who was known as Corinth's treasurer. So he was high up in government. He too was converted to the Christian faith. And the other names here are those who live in relative obscurity. What we, might, uh, what we might call little people. I'd like to thank people like you and me, you know. Right? Who's going to, uh, listen, who's, who's going to remember you 20, 30 years from now? Not many. Your family. Maybe if you're married and you have grandkids, kids, they'll remember dad or they'll remember grandpa and grandma, but, you know, most of us are just going to, we're going to be like dust in the wind, right? There are, there are individuals in the world, and, we, and the, these are individuals who are representative of the names that we find here, who are wealthy and who are well-known. We're the kind of church that has a history of looking into history. History is important to us. We find important names in the Bible that we remember. Remember the disciples of Jesus. or We'll remember someone like the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, and so forth. You go forward in history and you find great names like Augustine, Athanasius. You read during the Reformation period, many of us are familiar with these names, although we may not maybe know much about them, but John Calvin or Martin Luther, or Ulrich Zwingli, or, you know, the authors of our catechism, or Sinus and Livianus. And as you go forward in history, other movers and shakers, you have someone like a Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield, known as great preachers and theologians. And, and even today, um, if you were uh, worshiping with us uh, in our other facility last week, when, when uh, Pastor Tim Veenstra was leading worship, he mentioned three names there. Do you remember the names he mentioned? Charles Spurgeon, um, he mentioned, uh, boy, now I'm having a problem, Tim, Tim Keller, Tim Keller, oh, and R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, we even have, we have some of their books back on our book table, right, and what's interesting is a little bit of an application on the basis of this passage, we see that, that God's grace spills out to different people in different ways, there are individuals many years later because maybe articles or books that they have written or the kind of preaching that they did. Um, we say, "Oh, yeah, I, I remember so and so." Very, the Lord used them in a very influential way. But you the most people are like you and me. And and uh, you know, even even uh, even as as pastors, you know, don't don't kid yourself. It's it's always a temptation as a, as a pastor to, you know what, you want that big crowd, you want to be influential, you want a name for yourself. Yeah, it's true. You know you want to be known. You want to be noticed. And the fact of the matter is, as, as pastors or as elders or deacons, you hold office, and the fact of the matter is, is that, and we, you need to come to grips with this, that really we, we have to adopt the language of... The, um, of the Apostle Paul you know how he describes those in ministry ambassadors of Christ he calls them this he calls them earthen vessels nothing weak fools for Christ jars of clay not of steel he views them as punished sorrowful imposters having nothing and I'm not making this one up he calls them the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's not celebrity status, my friends. Right? Whether it be pastors, whether it be elders, whether it be deacons, whether you're serving in a church of some capacity, fundamentally, I mean in Christ we're everything, but in just in terms of who we are as human beings, we're just we're nothing. We're, we're little humble instruments in the hands of the Redeemer who make little dents of influence here and there in the church and in the kingdom. But I, wa- I want you to remember this. In the eyes of God, there are no little people. You, see, you might say, you know, like a lot of these obscure figures that we find here in, in, in Romans chapter 16, you might say, you know what, I'm, I'm a nobody and my name's going to go down in obscurity. So what? It's the Lord who notices. The Lord notes your form of service. And if it's done out of a heart for God, it's precious to him. And he remembers it. He remembers it. I want to give one quote from a man named D.A. Carson. If you put that on the... Um, can you go back? Is that it? Uh, there you go. No, go back. There you go. I'm going to read it. Take a look at the words up there. God's calculations of what is important in Christian ministry is rarely ours. When the saints go marching in, the widow who gave her might will will doubtless stand closer to the head of the queue than many a multimillionaire Christian philanthropist. And, dare I say it, Pastors of some tiny churches, and by the way, D.A. Carson, a very reputable theologian, his dad in Quebec pastored a very, very small, and what many people would say, not particularly influential church. So he's thinking about his dad here. Dare I say that pastors of some tiny churches I am certain may be preferred above the names that are better known in human courts. I am fully persuaded that on the last day there will be countless brothers and sisters in Christ unknown to the annals of history many of them illiterate or semi-illiterate, who have been starved, maligned, beaten, imprisoned, mocked, and finally killed, like some of the individuals in Romans 16. Brothers and sisters who never enjoyed one day in the spotlight of ministry, who will be given the crown of martyrs, and to whom it will be said, Well done, good and faithful uh, servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. The Lord Notice. And you know what? The Lord gives grace to to different individuals for different things. And He has given just enough grace to you to serve Him and to be a blessing to Him and also to others. So so in the end, in considering some of these names, the groupings of the names, some of the specifics, the biographical information of these names, um, let it be our ultimate desire and pursuit not to find... Our names mentioned in a book for posterity except one book, and that's the book of life, in which are the names of all those whom the Lord has chosen in Christ and all those who believe in Christ and all who served him in big ways and sometimes in small ways. And may that, may that be our ultimate pursuit, the book of life. And with that in mind, I want to leave you with this text. If you go there to Hebrews chapter 12, just the next PowerPoint. Can you do that? There you go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run, let us run the race set before us, looking to Jesus who is, thank God, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, on this summer morning, Lord, we want to thank you for this passage that you lay before us. Just a passage full of a, a number of names, well-known, some relatively not so well-known, and others that are just simply obscure and we really know nothing about. But you use them, Lord, Lord, And we trust that they now are with you in glory, having received from your mouth these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. Heavenly Father, we pray that however we have been gifted and how well we are known or unknown, that ultimately, Lord, our status is not going to be the first thing that's most important to us, but our position in Christ, walking with Him, talking with Him, serving Him, running the race set before us. Father, if we need encouragement in that this morning, thinking that in many ways, you know what, we're just, in many ways, so insignificant. We wonder if we're even making any impact. Heavenly Father, help us to know that you are working through us, and there are many ways, O oh Lord, that you are bringing fruit to our labors that we are not even aware of at this time, that they may only be borne out in the future. So, Father, encourage us with these words, we pray, as we continue to seek to serve you in this world, and here at Pathway, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.